The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran on this earth day 2020 the 50th anniversary of the inaugural earth day celebrations the earth is celebrating a lot of us are suffering and a lot of those who aren't suffering are inconvenienced and yet there's a lightness on the earth hopefully we can end the suffering and even the inconvenience at least a lot of it and continue healing the earth that is certainly my wish for this earth day Welcome, everybody, to our special Earth Day edition of the Main Street Vegan Program. I am your host, Victoria Moran. I'm very happy to be with you today. After the break, we will be welcoming back um, someone who's been here a couple of times, but not recently. And and he is Jim Hicks, and his brand new ebook, I mean, brand new like today, is called Outcry. Urgent alarms from our planet and what we can do about them. And right now, we are going to get so practical with one of my most popular guests of the past year. I got so much mail and so many wonderful uh, postings that people said, Have this woman back. She's so good. She's so interesting. I'm going to take all her suggestions and use them. And she is Deborah DeMare, vegan design expert. She's also an author, an educational speaker, and a global influencer for the ethical and healthy design movement. Her firm, Demare Design, has been creating beautiful interiors that span the globe for nearly 20 years. And her educational website, vegandesign.org, trains industry professionals all over the world about vegan and wellness design. Welcome. Welcome back, Deborah Demare. Thank you so much, Victoria. What a beautiful introduction. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. And I don't even think that when we scheduled this months ago, 
that I realized that it was Earth Day and and how perfect uh, your your topic is. So last time, and everybody, you can go back in the archives and and find the the last show that we did with Deborah. We'll put the exact (laughs) date of that on our show notes. Uh, We talked about bedrooms. And I have to tell you, I went to your website and I thought, she's an interior designer. She's only going to have suggestions (laughs) that are way out of my price range. But you had so much great stuff there that people could order from Amazon and wherever. And yes. and my husband and I got rid of our very last anything of animal origin. We had two wool rugs that he had collected on his travels years ago, but we don't have them now. We have these two fabulous rugs that we learned about on your website. So thank you I'm very so much. I'm happy. That makes me so, so happy. I'm sorry if you heard like... I, I, speaking of beds, I'm on the bed with my dog, trying to keep him still, and he's doing that thing, you know, where they dig and make themselves comfy. So I hope you didn't hear that too much. Well, it's a lovely, comforting sound. If anybody heard it, they can count <laughs> okay. themselves blessed. So what okay. we're going to do Thank today, you. instead of talking about interior design per se, we're going to talk about non-toxic cleaning. And when this uh, coronavirus epidemic first started, somebody sent around one of those silly memes, and it said something to the effect of, all of you who always wanted your organic artisanal cleaning products, Clorox and Lysol look pretty good now. And, you know, it's worth a chuckle, but I don't want to use Clorox and Lysol. They're not cruelty-free. I'd rather not breathe them so what do you have to tell us that's that's very interesting because that's exactly you know it's so funny because i um we're always getting um questions from our community about that and and that was a big question for the past like six weeks or so what can we use besides clorox because as most of the world is obsessed with it i'm like there have to be some alternatives because um you know as a cruelty-free designer focusing on healthy and ethical design, it was a bit of research. So I actually have notes written down. So I hope I don't sound too much like I'm reading. I'm going to keep going on and off, but I'm reverting to them. So my criteria, first of all, of a perfect cleaning product is one clearly that's not animal based It's vegan, right? It's cruelty-free, which many people think by being vegan that it is cruelty-free, and that is not the case many times. You can have a vegan pasta that was perhaps tested on animals in a lab. So it's vegan, but it's not cruelty-free. So don't be misled by that. You always have to make sure that you see both of those, both of those definitions there. And then, of course, it should be non-toxic. To me, that's just the icing on the cake. If I can find a product that is also non-toxic. Now, sometimes I can't. Sometimes the products will have some chemicals in them, but they're vegan and cruelty-free. Within the next few years, hopefully we'll be seeing more and more and more products that that carry all of the criteria. And in this talk, I'm going to talk about, after all my research, one that I found. I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but I found one great brand. Oh, I'm excited. Um, Yeah, yeah. And it was, and I kept switching it back and forth because I kept, it was really interesting for me because I love research. So this was a really good project for me. So, of course, spraying our bodies in bleach products is not necessary to kill viruses. That I have learned and many people have learned, it, especially during this time, you're hearing lots of different scientists and, and people speak about that. 
Um, one scientist, actually, I, I, I wrote down her quote. She wrote, using bleach on surfaces is like using a bludgeon to swat a fly. It's like a molecular garden shear chopping everything up, okay? So it's not necessary. But let's just understand chlorine bleach very quickly. Chlorine gas was used as a chemical weapon in World War I. The smell is so strong and toxic, it can trigger respiratory issues, which leads to cancer and other illnesses. It's bad stuff. It's an energy hog. Most people don't realize that uh, one to 2% of the world's electricity goes into making chlorine. And of course, as you mentioned, it's not, it's not cruelty-free. It's tested on animals. Now, a lot of people think that Clorox wipes contain chlorine, but that's not true. Clorox wipes don't contain chlorine. So you're saying, oh, maybe they're great because they don't contain chlorine, but they're not. They're very, very toxic and they're very, very dangerous. So cross that one off your list too, because I know the whole world is using Clorox wipes. Lysol, another option. If you're concerned about your health and the environment, Lysol contains denatured ethanol, which is poison. And high concentrations of Lysol can also cause lung and skin irritations, among many other sicknesses. I don't know about you, Victoria, but I have seen people actually spraying themselves with Lysol right on their skin directly. And um, I saw that the other day, actually, in the parking lot of a food store. And I was just thinking, this is insanity, you know? Um, because I'm not sure if everyone also understands that our skin is porous. It's like a sponge. And whatever we put near our skin goes directly into our bloodstream within seconds. And then it goes throughout our body and decides to land where it wants to land, which is why using um, animal-based materials, which we're not going to talk about, but just using animal-based materials is also so toxic because they're laden with chemicals. Since they're rotting, you know, hides or skins, they're laden with chemicals. And then we put those on our sofa, on a beanbag, or on anything, and we're, you know, cocooning our body with it. So think about cleaners like that as well. You know, you're surrounding your environment with toxins. You're cleaning a counter with where you're going to chop a tomato, and then you're ingesting that, okay? Um, so now, what does a cleaner or disinfectant need to contain, right, in order to kill germs and viruses? But first, I would just like to quickly explain what a virus is. Is that okay, or is this boring? Oh, no, not at all. It's very important okay, because... Okay. My understanding is that you can't really kill it because it's already dead. Oh, that I didn't know, but that's interesting. Here's what I learned. That's that's really interesting. Okay. I didn't hear. Okay, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's um, so much that that you can hear, yeah. but no, please continue. Yeah. Okay, so what I learned is that all viruses are made up of genetic code. And some viruses are encased in this viral envelope. And in my mind, of course, I picture like a white mailing envelope, which we know that is not the case. Um, but the ones with this envelope actually are easier to kill because when they degrade, they, they have their exterior is very delicate and it's very easy to destroy these envelopes. And corona actually has a very fragile envelope. It's not a strong virus that lasts for months and months and months. It's a weak virus. And that's why it only lasts a few days on the surface. You know, every week I'm getting new information, as I'm sure the whole world is. Now I'm hearing it lasts 24 hours on cardboard, two days on steel, three days on plastic. Viruses that don't have the corona envelope can live for months. So 
the but the virus being spread really from the the on surfaces they say is not really the primary cause of the transmission. They say most people are getting the virus from person to person transmission, a hug, touching hands, being in a crowded public place. Someone sneezes or coughs and they spread these infected droplets, correct? And since these droplets are heavy, they fall on the ground or a surface. And then we touch that surface and then we touch our nose or mouth, you know, stuff we already know. The virus also only lives for three hours as an aerosol, meaning in the air, airborne particles. Um, and what's interesting is they were saying at one point, which I don't know if they're still saying, but that they were that the hot weather, the humid weather is is better for us because the droplets get contained in like the thick air of the humidity so they can't fall on the surface. That's what I heard. So we know it's important to keep our surfaces clean, right? But most importantly is to keep our hands clean more, more than anything because we love touching our faces so much. So I've been washing my hands, as I'm sure the rest of the world, constantly because I like to be in control because if I'm in my house and I'm touching the stove, well, maybe I know that my kids didn't wipe off the, the handle of the stove. So I'm always going to be washing my hands. So what kind of soap do I use to wash my hands? Because that seems to be from everything that I'm reading, everything that I'm hearing, washing your hands is the most important thing. And what I came to, one of the conclusions that I originally came with was that ionic soaps are the strongest. Now, an ionic soap has ions or, or molecules that are actually shaped like a sperm with a small head and a tail. And the head is the ionic part, and it loves the water. And the tail is the fatty part, and that loves the oil. And these little sperms blow up the membranes, like which is the outer layer of this virus. So in my head, I picture an egg and a sperm, actually, and the egg is the virus, and the sperm enters the egg and blows it up. So what ingredients do you need in order for a soap to be ionic? So two of them are, and you don't have to remember this, sodium methyl 2 sulfate laurate. I said that 10 times before I got on this show. And mm -hmm. sodium laurel sulfate. Now, they sound very, very chemical and very toxic, right? But they're right. not. They're non-toxic. So I was like, Terrific. I'm going to find all the products, all the soap products that contain these two chemicals, these two um, ingredients, and this will be great. But as I started to delve deeper, I found out that although they're not toxic, they're derived from palm oil. So let's digress a bit and talk about palm oil, and then we'll get back to cleaning products. Palm oil is a trigger for me because I love orangutans. And when I think of palm oil, I think of orangutans. Palm oil is the most widely used vegetable oil in the world. And it's in everything. It's in up to, I believe, 50% of packaged products in supermarkets, from pizza to chocolate to shampoo, everything. It's also used in animal feed and as a biofuel in many, many parts of the world. It's a very versatile oil. And that's what makes it so widely used. You know, it's on a spread. It'll stay semi-solid at room temperature. It's resistant to oxidation, so it gives products a very long shelf life. It's stable at high temperatures. So it helps to give fried foods a very crispy and crunchy texture. And it's odorless, so it doesn't alter the, the, the smell or the taste of food. Palm oil has been, a con and it continues to be a 
that one of the biggest drivers of deforestation in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Colombia, and Africa. They've been processing palm oil actually for thousands of years in Africa. And, you know, 80% orangutans live in these jungles. Uh, palm oil, they, they, they live in the palm oil trees. They feed off the, the trees. 80% of the orangutan population has been destroyed because of us cutting down all of these beautiful jungles throughout the world for this oil. Hmm. So I, I think um, the, the listeners, uh, I, I believe, are aware of, of the problems with, um, with palm oil. So what do we do okay, to get so this ionic kind of soap? Okay, so what you do is, here's what not to look for. Okay. I had a whole list of products, okay? And, and, and what I kept finding was that I kept seeing RSPO, RSPO. And that stands for the Roundtable of Sustainable Palm Oil. It's an organization. And supposedly they sustainably grow palm oil trees. So they're not killing the environment and killing off all these animals. But as I looked into it, it reminded me of responsible wool. I think it's completely bogus in my opinion because most of the biggest oil palm producers in the world are involved in this organization. And I believe it's a very corrupt organization and it's a way for companies to make themselves look good for consumers when they're really not doing good. So what I found was after looking and looking and looking and trying to find soaps that what I found first was um, that after research, soaps with ions are the best for cleaning. However, you can use soaps without ions also. You just need to use a little bit more elbow grease when cleaning. Basically, you just have to use good soap. And dish soap is the best thing. Using a dish soap typically has ions in it. So if you can find a great, ethical, vegan, cruelty-free dish soap without palm oil, that's a perfect product. Now, I found one product, and it does contain palm oil, but this company actually, truly, honestly grows their own um, oil palm trees in Africa, and it's Dr. Bronner's. And it's, and it's funny because I'm interviewing Dr., uh, uh, um, someone from Dr. Bronner tomorrow in a webinar, and the reason I found out about it was because I was researching Dr. Bronner while doing this research. I started, uh, you know, a week or so ago, and I found out that they actually grow their own palm oil trees. And they have dish soap, and this is a perfect product to use during this crisis. They have every kind of product imaginable for the virus. They have the, you know, the, the um, hand sanitizers and everything. So that's what I found in conclusion to all of this stuff, that you can use soaps that have ions and don't have ions. Uh, the best soaps are dish soaps and clearly try to stay away from soaps that contain any kind of palm oil. And again, the only one that I found that, that, that met all the checks off of my list was Dr. Bronner. I had found wow. another one the week before. The week before, I found another one called um, like Mrs. Myers. I, originally, uh -huh. I was promoting Mrs. Myers in Seventh Generation. Nope, Mrs. Myers is is a member of this um, RSPO, the Roundtable, mm -hmm. which we know is bogus. And right. Seventh Generation contained sodium methyl sulfalorate, or one of those, which I know is derived from palm oil. So it was really, it's really been a task, and it's sad, but. You know, maybe this, what's going on now is really waking up people and they're seeing that, you know, 
I say karma's a funny thing, you know, and I, mm. I, I've been saying that since we started. Karma's a funny thing. But yeah. Dr. Bronner to me, again, I sound like an infomercial, which I didn't want to sound like, but that's the only product I found. If any of your listeners find another product, please let me know. I would greatly appreciate it. But that one seems to be perfect. Wow. And it's so classic hippie soap right. with the world's best yeah. labels. <laughs> so that yeah, is really exactly. good to know. And let me just follow up on, on the thing that we talked about earlier on about whether or not the virus is something that, that we want to kill or just scrub the covering yeah. off. Um, this is from uh, Eric Mendenhall, a biology professor at the University of Alabama. Viruses aren't considered alive. In class, I call them pseudo alive. They require a host to even begin to function. So just what you said, you know, scrub a dub dub with some good soap. So, okay. So we've got our hands taken care of. Now, what do we do for surfaces? Surfaces, again, I, I know I sound like an infomercial, Dr. Bronner's multi-surface spray. <laughs> right, right. And and That's what is in there that it, it's just the same principle? It It's Basically, it's the principle. They're, they're, right, they're using they're using these ingredients that do have palm oil because palm oil is in everything. But they're growing. They they have an entire. I wait. I have it written down. They actually started. It's called the Serendi Palm. That's their sister company in Ghana. Look, I'm reading. The company buys palm fruits exclusively from 500 small organic family farms. So they're not doing anything to touch the jungles. Oh, that's so wonderful. Multi-surface spray, so you can yeah. use that. But you know what? You can use from what I've read, Victoria. Dish soap is ideal. Dish soap is great to use on everything because it's ionic, so you have to use. You don't have to use as much elbow grease, and it cleans the surfaces perfectly. You don't need Clorox wipes. You don't need chlorine in to be using those toxins. That is absolutely wonderful because a lot of people. You know, even trying to get the seventh generation wipes, which I believe contain hydrogen peroxide or, um, you know, some of the alcohol wipes, you just can't get them, you know, whether... No, you can't get them. Whatever your standards are. So how wonderful to know this, uh, that just, you know, some (laughs) scrub-a-dub-dub is about the best thing that we can do. So tell us, Deborah, for just regular life, and you know, one of these days, regular life is going to return. I don't know if we'll recognize it, but we will have it. And then what do we use to clean, like, everything? What do you clean your house with? What do you clean mirrors and floors and cabinets that that meet all you your know, standards? I, I, I use, well, now, now I'm using Dr. Bronner's. I just placed an order. But um, before I was using um, Mrs. Myers, I was using Mrs. Myers a lot for everything, and I'm no longer using it. But I also am a big believer in in water, you know, water. And my mom taught me elbow grease, you know. So um, if if you just dampen a cloth and you put a little bit of cleaner on it, I mean, that cleans things beautifully. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away any of the varnishes or tarnish, especially when we're using, you know, the things that, that we use for clients, um, really, they're not treated. So you just have to clean them very delicately. And if they look worn, I say they look worn. And to me, that kind of adds a warmth to a home. I, I, yeah. I've always felt that way. You know, oh, that, I like that's it when, beautiful. When it, and simple. Yeah, it's and lithium. I always you know, tell I'm people... not talking dirty. You know, dirt's different than being worn. Yes. 
that that you want to get rid of the toxic waste dump under your sink and (laughs) simplicity all the way. So Deborah, you you have made a very gracious offer uh, to one of our listeners. You are inviting people to subscribe to your email list, vegandesign.org. And one of the first 50 people to do so will be randomly selected to receive a copy of your beautiful $140 book, Vegan Interiors. So vegandesign.org. Everybody go there, sign up. Maybe this will be your lucky Earth Day. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled, thrilled to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that I wouldn't qualify, so I won't subscribe. <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe I need to get a copy of your book anyway. I know it's absolutely lovely. So just finally in closing, as we celebrate Earth Day, can you just describe for us an, a truly Earth-friendly home? A truly earth-friendly home has absolutely no no taste, touch, smell, or anything of anything animal-derived. It, it has it's completely free of tragedy. It, it's just filled with good energy and lots of love and warmth. I love that free of tragedy. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. So I know that before we decided to talk about cleaners, we had also discussed talking a little bit about children and and some cool, healthy things to do with them while we're home. We're down to our last minute and a half, but um, what about kids? Okay, minute and a half. I picture Manhattan, family, three kids, mom and dad working, tiny apartment, what do you do? Create little areas within a space. So if they, in their bedroom, you can create um, a place for them to read, throw a sheet over a table, like a little end table, and they can climb under there and they can concentrate and read their book. You can put a bunch of big throw pillows on the floor in one corner. That can be their cushy area to just kind of lay back and mellow out. They need to make noise and move around and, and they have lots of energy. Throw them in the tub with slime, let them make a mess in the bathroom. Um, create pocket sensory areas. What is the goal of each little area? I need my child to concentrate for school. I need my child to let out his energy. I need my child to read. I need my child to move and get some energy out. Uh, push, pull, create, um, you know, fill a little basket with tons of books and have them push it across the room then pull it back the other way. Push, pull is very good for uh, proprioceptive awareness and, and releasing energy. Um, that's just a couple quick things off the top of my head. Oh, that's um, terrific. I, I also, might do a little push-pull yeah. myself. <laughs> Deborah yeah, Demare, thank you so thank you so very much. Vegandesign.org. We'll put this all on the show notes, and we'll be back after this. Thank you so much. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. 
the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody, and happy Earth Day to you. Uh, I haven't done a shout-out lately for my most appreciated sponsor, and that is Compliment. Compliment is a wonderful food supplement made by vegans for vegans, and some of those vegans who made it are Dr. Pamela Ferguson, vegan dietitian, no-meat athlete Matt Frazier, uh, cardiologist Joel Kahn, MD, and Compliment Plus is what I take, and it's got everything that you might be missing even on the world's best diet. So your B12 and D3, fully formed omega-3 fatty acids, got some zinc and selenium and um, uh, vitamin K2, and I just feel so complete <laughs> knowing that uh, I, I have this as part of my arsenal to go along with my uh, whole food plant exclusive diet. So if you want to learn more, just go to lovecompliment.com. And if you put in the discount code Main Street Vegan plus sign, that's Main Street Vegan all caps with a plus sign, you will save yourself some money and maybe get healthier while you're at it. Now, we are celebrating Mama Earth today and her health, and for that reason, I am utterly thrilled to be introducing one of my favorite people, Jay Morris Hicks. He is publishing his third book today on Earth Day, Outcry, Urgent Alarms from Our Planet and What We Can Do About Them. He notes on the cover that he and his co-author believe that COVID-19 may have a silver lining. Jim's first book was Healthy Eating, Healthy World, followed by The Four-Leaf Guide to Vibrant Health, both excellent and highly recommended. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Victoria. Good to be here. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful to have you. Well, as I told you, I have never read a full-length ebook in my life because I'm just not of the staring at a screen generation, even though I stare at a screen all the time. But I started reading Outcry, and I could not stop. So <laughs> you, you, you caused well, me to read an ebook, and I am so much the better for it. I think so often the environmental argument is something that, that people like me who aren't scientists, we just haven't gotten it, and you make it so clear and so pressing. So what prompted you to write uh, Outcry? Uh, let me uh, answer that with a question, actually. Um, for decades, we've all been urged to turn off lights, lower thermostats in winter, take shorter showers, recycle like crazy, carpool, take public transportation, install solar panels, use less air conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the question. If everyone in the world would do all of the above and much, much more, would that be enough to slow climate change, prevent the collapse of our civilization, and ultimately enable us to live in harmony with nature? 
Unfortunately, the answer is no, and it wouldn't even be close. So what we need is a, is a brand new system of living, and individuals can't create systems. Only, only powerful leaders can do that. But uh, because sadly, everyone is just trying to do their best, it's, it's just not going to be good enough, uh, no matter how we all try. So in September of 2018, I began blogging about an envisioned sustainable future for humanity. And since then, I've posted over 80 articles on that topic. And about six months ago, I said, I decided that the story I'd been telling in all those blogs needed to be told to the world, but in a concise, easy to read format. And that is the theme of the book that was released today on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Well, congratulations. I'm so glad you did it. I hope everybody on Earth reads this <laughs> this Earth Day book. Um, so yeah. you, you say that that's a very provocative uh, line you have on the cover about there might be a, a silver lining to COVID-19. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I think that for, for some, it has jolted us into realizing that we have some serious issues with how we are interacting with the natural world. And maybe, just maybe, that COVID-19 pandemic will help us realize just how far we are from living in harmony with the biosphere that gives us life. Um, and in that chapter, I, I spoke, I have a whole chapter on the possible silver lining of COVID-19, chapter 13, <laughs> unlucky number, right? Maybe not. In those, <laughs> uh, hopefully not, maybe the reverse there. But in that, it, toward the end of that chapter, I said, before COVID-19, if our chances, long-term chances of survival were 20%, I believe that they're now at least 40%. So I think they've doubled just because of this awakening that we've all had about how our lifestyles can totally change and, and we can still get, get on with life. But it's also a lot is coming, coming out by various doctors that, are, that I mentioned in the book, Dr. Barnard, Dr. Campbell, you know, if we hadn't started eating animals in the first place, there probably wouldn't be any of these pandemics. But that's not a scientific fact, and I'm not going to try to try to tell you that it is. But I think if we can just listen carefully to what nature is telling us and take drastic actions to create that successor civilization that she requires, I, I actually believe that our survival chances could soar well to well over 50%. And... Um, that's kind of kind of what keeps me going. I, I I would I'm I'm distressed as any everyone else about the coronavirus and the pandemic and people dying, but if there's a silver lining, uh, that's that's that makes things a whole lot better. Yes. So you said that it's going to take a new system. I know that's something Dr. Silas Rao, who's been on this program, also talks about but that a whole new system is going to take leadership from governments and industry. So what can we do as individuals? Well, um, that gets to the, to the heart of the message in the book. And I use this word 40, over 50 times in the book. 
what we're really trying to do with, with showing people a vision of how we could live so much more efficiently that it may spark a conversation, spark the conversation globally to start, start realizing how far away we are from living anywhere close to being in harmony with nature. One of the nine scientists featured in Chapter 4 is Dr. James Lovelock. He's 100 years old, and he's, he is uh, one of the most amazing big-picture scientists in the world. Uh, he's quoted throughout the book. But his, his definition goes like this. If, we, uh, if, if the earth improves because of our presence, then we will flourish. If it does not, we will die off. Now, we, we are a long way from improving planet Earth. And in fact, um, my guesstimate, and it's a pure guesstimate, if on a, on a scale of one to 100, how close are we from actually improving nature? And I think we're 10% or less of the way there. We haven't even considered it in anything we do. Is our, our economy, everything we do is all about producing more stuff and taking down more trees and all the things that are just uh, just killing nature. And so the part one of the book is where we, we outline the various evidence of outcries from nature and from science and from activists like, like Greta Thunberg in Sweden and, and really kind of make it a simple, easy read. Uh, one of my grandsons is in the 12th grade. He's missing his senior prom this year, but uh, they're all hibernating up in um, uh, New Hampshire this week, and I got a note from him. His name is Andrew Hicks, and he told me that he had started reading the book, and he said, it's, it seems pretty good. They call me Grandbuddy, and uh-huh. I'm thinking, you know, um, the first editor that I ever had said, you've got to start people off in a book, kind of take them by the hand and tell them a story. So my book starts off with me as a boy in Greenville, Mississippi, when I shot and killed a woodpecker for no reason whatsoever except target practice. I was 11 years old. And so I told that story and a few more anecdotes that were related to the insect and bird um, collapse of their, their the, those species and the, and the collapse of the you know, millions of them are are dying and and the total numbers of them going down dramatically all the time. So uh, I I figured if I could could interest a 12th grader on his way to college, that maybe I'd started it off right. No, that's wonderful. I love it. I love it. So you you mentioned the the scientists, you mentioned James Lovelock, but you have a, a group of nine of them. And What's special about them? How did you select this particular group of scientists? Well, I um, I got interested in climate change, really interested about um, two or three years ago. And ever since I wrote, started writing about our food choices back in 2011, when I fir- first published my book, I'd always been thinking it was really cool that if we eat whole plant-based foods and we don't eat any animals, meat, dairy, eggs, and fish, that we will actually be helping the environment. 
but I didn't realize how much we would be helping the environment. But I just kept studying and looking for for scientists that had connected the dots, and and I really hadn't hadn't found too many of those kind of people. Uh, most scientists that I knew, aside from Dr. T. Colin Campbell, think that we really have to eat animal protein to be healthy. I think most most healthcare workers truly believe that, and so it's hard to find a big picture scientist that that really looks at at all of all of what's driving our our uh, processes on planet Earth. And so over the over the next few years, I just started searching various topics, looking up looking up people that I found. I found Dr. James Lovelock doing on a video that had been published in 2010 on BBC. I pulled uh, quotes out of that. I found Dr. Frank Finner, who was the guy that led the overall project, worldwide project, that led to the eradication of smallpox. So three of my top, of, my, of those nine p- big picture scientists are deceased. And that would be Jacques Cousteau, uh, Frank Finner in Australia, and Robert Goodland, uh, Robert Goodland was the first ecologist ever hired by the World Bank, and he ca- became known as the conscience of the World Bank. And I was just getting to know him when he died in 2013, but he had concluded that that at least 51% of the human-driven greenhouse gases at least 51% come from the livestock industry. So that means it's more than all other factors combined, yet I hadn't heard zero scientists talking about that. Uh, Dr. Campbell was talking about it a little bit because he's the one that told me about about those scientists. So as I found these these big picture picture scientists tend to – they're not they're not necessarily working for organizations that give them a paycheck because when they have when they're in that situation they're not exactly free to say everything they would like to say they have to say the party line but uh, there are certain scientists that that I found and they're prominent people like like Cousteau and E.L. Wilson T. Colin Campbell but there are some you've never heard of uh, most people have never heard of Dr. Peter Wadhams, who is a polar scientist, and he's the, arguably the world's leading authority when it comes to studying climate change and how that relates to the melting ice in the Arctic. And he and I visited him in person, and I included him in that chapter of nine. I also included one one person that um, some people didn't think I should include. Uh, his name is Guy McPherson. He is uh, was a professor, full professor, tenured professor at the University of Arizona, at under age before the age of forty, and he left Arizona. He actually re- resigned when they stopped letting him teach, and they stopped letting him teach because he was telling the truth about climate change, and it it was truths that were scaring some of the students. So I have gotten to know Guy McPherson. I don't like his conclusions, but they're all based on the refereed scientific literature. And 
And given his background and everything he's done prior to when he left the university, I felt like even though I don't, I don't particularly like his style, I don't particularly like his conclusions, um, he's a scientist that's based his conclusions, like all scientists do, on on um, what what other scientists have, have done and what they've studied themselves. So uh, I will tell you that, that that particular scientist is predicting that that human humanity will go extinct before 2030. Uh, that's why people don't don't like to hear him talk. Um, I think the silver lining behind him is that he jolted me into thinking a little more broadly about this topic and really trying to delve into okay, what would it take? And when he saw the cover of my book, which says you know, urgent alarms uh, from our planet and what we can do about them. He said, what we can do about them is nothing because it's too late to do anything. And I said, well, that hasn't been proven to me. Maybe it's been proven to you, but it hasn't been proven to me. And I'm going to write a book suggesting that we give it our best shot to turn our civilization into the most, the most Earth-friendly way of living that humans could possibly live. And if that isn't enough, then at least my grandchildren will know that I tried. You have been trying as long as I have known you, and you've done it in a very educated and, and very sensible way. And I hope that this book will, will be your, your biggest outreach yet. So, Jim, what do we do to prevent our extinction, whether in 10 years or 40 years, I know there's something of a range about how long these scientists think we have. What can we do to be around, live in harmony with nature, and, and fix this thing? If there is hope, what do we do? And I'm going to go with hope. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with hope. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to the statement that uh, James Cameron had on the uh, cover of our book. He says, the world, and by the way, I got this uh, out of a, an email that he sent me uh, this uh, year ago this month. I had written something in one of my blogs that he didn't particularly like because it implicated some friends of his. And so we had an email exchange about that, and uh, I agreed to kind of rewrite the blog. And then he wrote back and, and um, said some nice words to me about my work, and, and, and in that email he had this this these two phrases and i said you know what that would be great i'd already started thinking about a book and and i said that would be great to put on the cover of my book if he will if he will approve it and so he has approved it by the way and here it is the world is completely delusional and going to hell in a handbasket as fast as humanly possible the only relevant question is how do we make the crash as soft a landing as possible for some kind of continuation of human civilization? So I'm thinking what we're trying to do in this book is answer that question. And so it was a few months after that, after he had made that statement. Well, actually, in, in September of 18, I in September of 18, I started blogging about an envisioned sustainability future for humanity. 
And so that's that's a year and a half now. Since then, I've posted over over 80 articles on the topic. And in the in those various uh, postings, I talked about an envision solution that ended up being one that it's 25 miles wide and 3,000 miles long, running from the Boston area to the Seattle area, featuring a 760-mile-an-hour hyperloop transit system in the middle. It would eliminate all, almost all vehicular traffic in the country. When it was fully occupied, it would, could handle 300 million people in less and in, in 70% less dense than Manhattan is today. And so I just started blogging about it every week. And as my vision evolved, uh, about six months ago, after a year of that blogging, I realized, you know, I've got a story to be that's being told in those blogs. Uh, and I just needed, as I said, to, to tell it in a concise, easy-to-read format. With all of the vision, uh, the vision for how it might look, what it might feel like to live there, how would the economy work? And so I, I have a section in there about a U.S. aircraft carrier that, that has 5,000 people on board. And all of those people have one goal in mind, and that is to keep their vessel afloat and to protect it from any enemy attack. They all want to be there. They all have trained to be there. They enjoy their camaraderie with their friends. They have all their food taken care of, but they have a meaningful job. And so if we use that as an example to kind of say, we could have something like that in in this in this uh, corridor, a living corridor that I have named the Great Big Northern because it it goes along the same route of the former Great Northern Railway. And people would have jobs there, but... But people would have, as far as the economy, I'm envisioning earthonomics replaces capitalism. And in earthonomics, you know, just like on the ship, on the aircraft carrier, the captain has bigger quarters than the other officers. Uh, the officers have bigger quarters than the, uh, than the seamen and the chief petty officers and so forth. And everybody trained to be where they are. Well, in the in my living quarter of the future, I envision that some people will be doing more to promote the health of the environment than others, and those are the people that will have the privileges. And so the whole system will be based on what are you doing to help improve nature, as Dr. James Lovelock has said. And the vision that I've described was just something that I felt like my my grandchildren could understand, and I don't expect that it will be ever happen the way I've described it, I'm just hoping it'll get the conversation started. It's all about talking about the fact that what we have is going to kill us all, according to, uh, and a lot lot sooner, according to McPherson. Yes. I love your vision. I'm going to hold your vision with you for the Great Big Northern. And for right now today, this Earth Day, to the people listening, Step one, read your book. Then what? What do we do right now in our lives to hedge our bets? Well, I've got a, and there's a chapter, pay particularly attention to chapter 
14, which is the next to last chapter, and it's how can you make a difference? And it starts out with, with adopting a plant-based diet. And and I listed all of these things saying that none of these, if, if everybody did all 10 of these, it would not be enough. Uh, but it may be enough to slow down the uh, our, our termination date. Maybe it'll slow it down for what McPherson says is 2030. Maybe it'll slow it down to where we, it's uh, the end of the end of this century. Now, if we have 80 years to get it right, I think we've got a better chance to do that. So, so all of the things in in that list were things like, you know, moving to when you get a chance, move to a city that uh, has everything you need, into, including mass transit. Um, I mentioned one. One item in there that people originally don't like, but after you read the book, I think you will understand why it's in there, and that's um, get out of the the routine of feeling like you must own another sentient being. Uh, there are 379 million pets, million uh, pets in this country, and they produce an enormous amount of excrement, an enormous amount of stuff to care for them. And uh, I think if, if people love love animals, they should rescue the animals. Oh, but absolutely! And, and humanity has, has to get out of the business of owning other sentient beings. Uh, that's what got us in trouble with the coronavirus: is is our relationship with animals. I'm not suggesting that our pets caused it, but in order to really get the get the 20 seconds. Crucial importance here. We have to look. We have to look at everything that we do on this planet and justify it in terms of Lovelock's definition. If Earth improves because of our presence, we will flourish. If it does not, we will die off. We've Ooh. got to question everything we do, and we have to make it improve our lives so that they're still fun. But help, help <laughs> Still, but I thank you, uh, Jim Morris, and my my vegan dog thanks you, and um, everybody. The book is Outcry, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.